0: Well, this series that we're in, it is called Let's Talk About It. Y'all y'all get that, you see it. And uh, a friend of mine visited last week and they were like, man, their son was like, that was so cheesy. I need to talk to Uncle Sean about this, you know? I mean, you know, but at the same time, he was disappointed that we're, there were no tacos. So I'm kind of like, yo, bro, like cheesy tacos, like you wanted the tacos, but you didn't want the cheese. I mean, you know, you can't have it both ways. So, but uh, here's the point of this series. You know, there's times in today's culture where there's a lot of polarizing issues, and when it comes to you communicating with your community and your family about these issues, it makes it really difficult. And you know, when you're in, when we're in the middle of a, a heated political season, or maybe when one of these issues is really highlighted in the culture, you really don't stand a chance. Uh, Having a genuine, honest conversation with somebody where hearts are open and we can actually treat people uh, like respectable human beings. So this series, the intention behind this series is to help allow scripture to guide us in some of the most contentious conversations in our culture. To see what the Bible says about these things. And let me say this, we sent out an email with a content warning a couple weeks ago, letting parents know the topics that we're going to be covering so that you could decide as a parent whether you feel that it's appropriate for your kids to be a part of the service or not. And um, we also think, though, that we're trying to be extremely biblical. We're not trying to be purposely provocative, although there may be some provocative information, uh, but hopefully you can use this as a catalyst for conversation in your own home. And, you know, yesterday I was hanging out with our former pastor, Mike Benson, and my father in law. And he said, You better stick to your notes tomorrow, buddy. You know, I know how you are when you go off the rails. So, how many of you will appreciate it if I stick to my notes today? Um, I know some of you are like, Go off the rails a little bit, buddy. It'll be fun. Man, it's fun for you, but it's not always fun for me when I go off the rails. You know, mostly not because of you guys, but because of my wife over here. You know, I get it in between services like, babe, that was not in the message yesterday, but. I'm gonna. I'm gonna be doing a lot of reading today, just because I do want to uh, stay on script today. Last week, Chris had talked about the biblical perspective of abortion and life in the womb, and I think she did a masterful job at communicating God's word with truth and with grace. Uh, I'm so proud of you, babe. So incredible. Um, you know, when we planned these series out, you know, I, I just thought, you know, I'm going to have to do that one. And she's like, I got it, babe. And I was like, thank you, Lord. You know, great job. Great job. But um, today we're going to be talking about the topic of Christian sexual ethics, Christian sexual ethics. You know, this is a huge topic that really could be its own series. Um, And today, though, because we're just going to have one message in this entire series, we're just going to scratch the surface and um, kind of build a strong biblical foundation uh, for the people at the Grace Place and our house. uh, Because no matter what issues are brought up in culture without a strong biblical foundations on the basics? Everything tends to crumble from there. And I want to start today off by reading Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It's going to be on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 10. Here's what it says. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Did you know that humans, we are God's handiwork and not just a part of us, but actually all of us. And scripture tells us that God created us in his very own nature. How many know that in Genesis, we also discover that although we are created in God's image, that sin has defiled God's image. And part of what makes up humans is our sexuality, And our sexuality is included in God's handiwork. It is included in God desiring for us to do good works. And scripture actually helps us to discover what God desires from us in the area of sexuality. And scripture informs us on how we should view our assigned sex and gender at birth. It informs us how we should socially engage regarding our sexuality. It describes that sex within the context of Scripture is actually good. So today we're going to discuss how Scripture calls us to do good works in the area of Christian sexuality. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you so much today. We pray today as we, that we would deliver and communicate on your word the same way that you would, full of truth and full of grace. We pray today that you would open every heart in this room because I know behind closed doors, behind the statistics, behind the information are people, people with a story, people with sexual brokenness. And God, I pray today as we talk about human sexuality and a little bit about sexual brokenness that you would heal your church as you promise and you have done many, many, many times in Jesus' name. Would you say a big amen? Amen. Well, I'm gonna kind of give you like an intro to the intro a little bit today. You know, why is this issue so complicated? It's complicated because of this Because progressive Christianity and pop Christianity, and let me just kind of explain that term, progressive Christianity, it's interesting in some ways... I actually think that many of you, and myself included, are progressive Christians. Here's what that means, that we've just learned throughout history time and time again, and we've gotten better. How many know the church has gotten better as Christ has revealed himself in the church, and we've got to know Jesus, the Savior? How many of you would agree with me? But also at the same time, uh, the church has gotten progressive in not a good way, in a way that it has progressed past the scriptures, And um, so the reason why this issue is so complicated is because progressive and pop Christianity has become the leading voice in the area of our culture when it comes to sexuality. They've flooded social media space with their message, and in fact, they use scripture to support their view and i want to tell you that many of them are very intelligent when it comes to understanding the scripture and they're very intelligent when it comes to understanding historical context in fact probably more intelligent than many pastors that stand behind the pulpit and because of that the message and the way that they communicate the message can easily cause people to go wow i didn't know that scripture said that i didn't know that that was the context i didn't know that that was the the historical context. I didn't understand that it it intended it that way. That's pretty convincing. Uh, How many of you have ever heard an argument on one side of the fence and you were so sure that it was the right argument? How many of you have ever been there before? Just raise your hand. We got to have a little fun. Let's just loosen it up in here. And then how many of you like, you heard the other side of the argument and you're like, that sounds kind of true too. Raise your hand, raise your hand. So, so that's why this could be so complicated because um, people and their arguments can sound so real and honest and heartfelt and compelling. But I want you to know that just because an argument is compelling does not mean that an argument is accurate. And that's one of the reasons why we try to teach our church don't listen to everything that we say behind the pulpit and take it as God's word. You go back, you do your homework, you open the scriptures, and you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, listen, I'm not saying don't trust your pastors, listen, we want you to be able to trust us, but listen, you've got to do your own homework, because when it comes to you standing on your own two feet, talking with your family members who are struggling with same-sex attraction, or your families who are in the LGBTQ community, or discussing with your kids kids this issue you need to know where you stand on the issue and it needs to be a firm ground that can't be shaken because if your ground can be shaken here's how you know when people are unsure about what they believe they're easily angered they're easily triggered and uh, and they're not open to conversation. And so when you find yourself being that way, let that be a signal to you that it's just that you're not standing on firm ground. And when you know how strong and how firm the word of God is and God himself is, we don't have to fear because he cannot be shaken. So neither should we. Can I hear a little bit of an amen? Listen, if you're over 40 years old today... Um, And that's a good amount of you in the room, Uh, just by looking around the room. Yes, I am judging your age based off of how you look. if you're 40 and over, the land your kids and grandkids live in um, is a land full of LGBTQ plus people. It's a land full of mixed uh, sexual ethics. It's a land full of confusion. Uh, it's a land full of polarizing ideas. Uh, also, if you're in your 20s and 30s, this is really the world that you're living in. And um, I want to tell you that people are looking for somebody to process with. They're not looking for somebody to Bible thumb. Chances are they already know the traditional Christian sexual ethic. They probably know what you already believe. They don't need you to Bible thumb. Uh, If they've never heard the truth of God's word, yeah, they need to know it. But they need to have space to sit down across the table with somebody who will have a conversation with them without getting angry at them, mad at them, contentious, but kind with them, loving with them, with the truth of God's word. And they need space and here's what I know, that the church has been more reactionary uh, than we actually have ever been around some of these issues. And I think it's because we're scared about the world our kids are growing up in. So I'm not saying that any of us are bad, that I'm bad for being reactionary. I'm just saying that sometimes when we're reactionary, it's not helpful. When we're reactionary, we shut people down. And we're re- when we're reactionary and we shut people down, they shut us out. <laughs> And how many know they need the light of Christ in their life? They need God's word in their life and they need the truth of God's word and they need to experience the grace of God as they struggle with these issues. But if if we just slam down God's word on them and we're reactionary and they shut us out, they have no chance to have the light of Christ walk alongside them as they struggle with these issues. So this is why we have to talk about it. And, and I already know I'm going to go over today. So how many is going to give me a couple extra minutes to go over uh, as we talk today? Can I get a little amen? I see a couple waves. So the rest of you didn't wave. I'm sorry. The people have spoken. Uh, I, I want to I mention and make sure we all understand that God has not abandoned this world. I want to remind you that scripture says in Psalms 119.90, it declares this about God. Your faithfulness continues from one generation to the next. How many know that God will be faithful to this next generation the same way he's been faithful to you? You can stand on that as a part of your firm foundation. Well, what is a Christian sexual ethic? It's really quiet in the room today, and sometimes that makes me really nervous, but that's just because you guys are like, yes, what is he going to say today? I, I know how it is. What is a Christian sexual ethic? Ethics always begins with this question, and the question is this. It's up on the screen. The question is this. How do we know what we know? How do we know what we know? In the case of Christian sexual ethics, I want you to notice a particular word. The word Christian, say that with me, Christian. Christian sexual ethics is a way that Christians discover how we know what we know. Because Christian sexual ethics and non Christian sexual ethics are two different things. When we talk about Christian sexual ethics, it describes how a Christian makes their decisions regarding human sexuality. It answers questions like this. What can or can't I do with my body sexually? It describes who is suitable for fulfilling my sexual desires. And a Christian's response to these questions should be, the word of God informs me on these issues. The goal of Christian sexual ethics is to inform us so that we would reflect God's nature and his love to the world around us. We have been given the responsibility of God as believers in Christ to reflect him to the world. So because of that, the fruit of the spirit should be evident in our life around the area of sexuality for Christians. We should reflect love, joy, peace, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, we cannot expect non-believers to share the same sexual ethic that we are working with because they're fundamentally different. Somebody say different. They are different. Let me explain. When a non-Christian seeks to answer the questions around sexual ethics, they don't go to the word to find their answer. And as much as you and I would like to say, well, it's just the foundation of every society. It's been the foundation of many societies and I believe that it's the right foundation. It's the traditional and historical foundation that we see from the church. But every, every nation, every society that moves from the foundation of scripture and turns into a post-Christian society like we've seen in Europe, like we've seen in the East, like we see in America, people move away from Christian sexual ethics and it becomes a more of a secular ethic society. So when people who are non-believers go to answer the questions around sexual ethics, they answer them based off of this. I know that this is ethically good, right or wrong, because it feels right for me. They might say things like, I know that it's ethically good because the majority says it's ethically good or my community says it's ethically good or my tribe says that it's ethically good. Probably one of the most popular reasons why non-believers would qualify a sexual ethic as something that is good because they might say this, I know it's ethically good because it makes me happy. And here's the challenge that I see with these things from a biblical perspective. I'm not trying to convince a non-believer of this. I'm I'm talking to the church today. Here's what the challenge behind this, and when you allow these ideas to creep in and create your ethic, the challenge for this is is this, that the problem with the idea that this makes me happy is this. I can tell you from firsthand experience because of the sexual sin in my own past that it made me happy too, temporarily, and I deal with the effects today of my own sexual immorality when I was young. And so, just because it made me happy is not a good reason as a believer for me to do something because there are long term effects to things. How many know what I'm talking about and you see it in your own life? Don't say it, amen, out loud. Just say amen in your heart. I ain't trying to call no one out today. So how does scripture inform Christians on the subject of sexual ethics? The first thing I notice is scripture addresses believers. And I kind of alluded to that, but I want to be a little more direct. When scripture talks about God's sexual ethic, he first delivers this message to his people, the believers, people of God. And God does not deliver this ethic to people that are outside his family. They're invited into it, but he delivers this message to the people of God so that they can be the expression of God to the world. And The narr the, the narration of scripture as we see God describe who he is, we see God lay out a sexual ethic. And we see it given given to the people of Israel. And we see the people of Israel receive this ethic, but we also see them fall away. And we also see God give them warnings for what will happen in their life when they stray away from his commands. So because of this today, the message that I'm communicating today is directed towards the church. This message is not for the world to hear. This is for the house of God to hear. If I were preaching a message to the world, I would not slam them with the message of morality. I would bring the message of Jesus Christ, the message of the cross, the message that heals all brokenness, the message that deals with every form of immorality, every form of sin, and brings people back into right relationship with the Father. I believe that issues of morality, they're issues of discipleship. Am I saying God doesn't care about them? Not at all. I'm saying that many of these issues regarding morality are dealt in the area of discipleship. And and here's what I know. I know this, that if, if Christians had to be rid of all immorality of all kinds, and today we're talking about sexual sin. So if we had to be rid of all sexual sin, not just in the action, but of the heart, most of us would not have qualified to receive salvation when we did, including me. That's what I know. And, and here's what I know. And it, it's sad that many people are sexualized at an early age and things get cracked open in their heart. And some, most of the time, it's not because kids go out looking for it and they find it. It's because holes are left open in their home and they're exposed at an early age because of neglect of parents. And kids are exposed to things like pornography and they learn about things before their little minds and their little bodies are ready to understand them. And my little heart and my little mind was exposed early in elementary school, at the earliest age of around seven years old to this stuff. And it's, and it's amazing to me what that did to my mind as I grew up as a young man. And I know that I'm not the only one with a story like that. But I also know that if I were to ask God, what do you think of me as you look back at my life as that little seven-year-old boy who was exposed to that? I remember my counselor one time told me, Sean, if, if your child at seven years old was exposed to something like that, how would you, how would you approach them? I started crying. I was like, wow. Wow. I've called myself for years and years and years. This is, you know, before I experienced healing in this area. But for many years as a young man, I saw myself as a little pervert. I saw myself as a a little lust bucket, worse off than everyone else, a worst sinner on the planet, until the grace of God came into my life and spoke truth into my little world and said, the Holy Spirit said, I'm so sorry you had to be exposed to that at an early age. I'm so sorry sin affected you in that way. And I believe today that the Holy Spirit would say the same thing to some of you who were exposed at an early age. It wasn't something that you wanted. It wasn't something that you were looking for. In fact, maybe it was somebody who, who brought something upon you and the Holy Spirit would say to you that I'm really sorry you got exposed to that and that it has wreaked havoc in your life through the last several years. Today, we're talking to the church. God's word is for the church. And it's important for the church to understand and realize that sexual sin does not just impact the people out there. It's not just a message for the people out there. It's not just the world out there is not so messed up and so screwed up. But I want you to know that this impacts the church. And when you get down to the nitty gritty in almost every counseling session, this topic gets brought up because it impacts the church and I want you to know the reason why we're talking to this today is because we want the church to understand what scripture says. And we want to be truthful and we want to be graceful. And here's what I know about our church, that we've had people who attend our church, they're in same-sex relationships. We've had same-sex married couples show up to our marriage events. We've, I've counseled them. We've had people in our church with family members and friends who are part of the LGBTQ community, and they're struggling with learning how to hold their own convictions. We're Regarding God's word, yet maintain some kind of a relationship so that they could share the love of Christ with their friends and family that they love and they're hurting for. Friends, it's possible today to love people and not agree with them at the same time. That is okay. And the world wants to tell you that if you love me, that you have to accept and like everything about me. But how many know that it's true? That I don't think anybody would ever say I love somebody, but I like and accept everything about them. My wife loves me deeply, but guess what? She doesn't like and accept everything about me. She wishes that I would be changed. How many of you know? Any, any amens from the wives in the room? You're like, I wish my husband would change in some ways. And, and husbands, don't say amen, because your wives can get away with a lot more than you can. But uh, that's, just, that's just how we are are. And I want to remind us that it's very hypocritical of the church that when Christians are struggling with their own sexual sin as they watch sex on TV, as they read about it in books and magazines, as they watch movies, as they watch porn, and as they have their same-sex affairs or as they have their same-sex relationships with somebody who they're not married to, it's so sad and it's hurtful because the reality is that the church has her own sexual sins, yet at times we are outraged at the immorality at the world, pointing our fingers at the world when we really have issues of our own that we should be dealing with. I think God's word for sexual purity, it's for the homosexual, it's for the heterosexual, and it's for every other kind of sexual that's out there. His word is for everybody. And because of this, I'm not asking for a bunch of amens and you're not giving it to me. So thank you for that. Because I want us to consider our own morality. I want us to consider our own purity today. As we look at God's word, we see God addressing Old Testament believers in passages like Exodus 20. God gives the Israelites a standard to live by called the 10 commandments. And there's a lot of laws included in these. And these commandments were given to the people and the nation of Israel because he wants these people to express what he believes about sexuality to the world around them. And we see time and time again, how many know Israel fails at this? How many you see that? And time and time again, God shows up with his loving kindness and his grace and he helps them. And, and they experience a lot of terrible effects of their sin because how many know that, that you reap what you sow? And although God still forgives us and he gives grace, we still reap what we sow. And as much as God may forgive somebody for their sexual sin, they sow time and time again in their lifetime because of that. And the purpose, overall purpose of these laws was to to reflect God's desires for sexual ethics. But we also see God address New Testament believers as well in 2 Corinthians 5 and 20. In fact, Scripture says this to the church. He says, this could be to you as well, to the New Testament church. He says, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God is making his appeal through us to the world. So the writers say, we implore you, we encourage you on behalf of Jesus to be reconciled to God in every area of your life, including your sexuality. And what's an ambassador? An ambassador is a representative, somebody who stands in lieu of somebody else. And in this case, we stand in representation of Christ to the world, regarding what God desires of our sexuality. 2 Corinthians 4 is not a call for the sexual purity of the people outside of Christ, but the sexual purity of the people inside of Christ. I want you to know that the Christian sexual ethic is a distinctive ethic for the church. And this is based off of scripture. The Christian should be able to love people without forcing them to adhere to our Christian ethic, rather invite them to salvation and invite them to taste and see that the Lord is good in every area of their life as God begins to correct and reshape and transform their morale. In your notes, what am I saying today? I'm saying this, that scripture is instruction for the people of God and an invitation to the lost. I'm not saying that I don't think our society would be better and safer if the lost world around us began to ingrace Christian sexual ethics. I'm just saying that this is an ethic for the church that we need to reflect at a high level. We're talking about Christian sexual ethics. We're looking at scripture to see how it informs us and what it addresses. We, we notice that it addresses the church. The next thing we notice is scripture addresses the boundaries. Yes, yeah, scripture gives us a guide for our sexuality and answers questions around the boundaries of sex, the boundaries of marriage, the reason for sex. And let's talk about them. One of the boundaries that scripture gives us about our sexuality in your notes is this, that sex is for marriage. We're going to look to the Old Testament. We see the first marriage or the first union in the Bible in Genesis 2. 18 through 25, but today we're just gonna read 18. It says, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And it continues to go on in this scripture to describe the union between this man and woman, the marriage, the oneness relationship between Adam and Eve. And what we notice in the first example of marriage is that God gives us a pattern. And this pattern is an opposite sex Pattern, a marriage between a man and a woman. Yeah. The original Hebrew here places a verb when it describes that God is giving Adam a helpmate, scripture says. And it puts a word, a verb before the word helper and describes the type of helper that Adam is to have. And some translations actually say that God gave Adam a suitable helper, that word suitable describes the type of helper, and it describes what makes the helper suitable for a partner, a marriage partner, and a sexual partner for Adam. And here's the word. I'm going to put it on the screen. It's the word kinegdo, the word kinegdo in Hebrew. And God says, I'm going to make him a kinegdo helper, a suitable helper. And this word is broken down into two different words. The first word is the word Key. The word key is a word that describes as or likeness. So what God is saying is I'm going to give Adam a helper, one that is as or in the likeness of Adam. And in this case, we know that that God is saying one that is like Adam in the human sense. And now I know Adam, you know, as Adam was like discussing in the garden and having these conversations and, and with God, I can only imagine that Adam's like, thank God that you described father or walking in the garden of Eden. thank God that you described that you were going to give me a helper that was just like me God I appreciate that because when I look around all I see is these animals and they have helpers and I was hoping that you wouldn't give me one like them but you would give me one like me as I, I know that was a stupid joke and it's like but I just kind of had to like throw a little some of you shrugged your shoulders like no I wasn't so bad thank you so much uh, the second word that that God uses in the Hebrew to describe the type of helper not only is it a helper that is as or like Adam meaning in the hum, in the human sense that it's also the second word is the word neged neged this is a Hebrew word that describes somebody to be opposite or against, which means that God was going to give Adam a suitable helper that was like him in his humanness, but also opposite to him in his sexuality. And so what qualified Eve as a suitable helper, as scripture would describe, it was that she was qualified as a sexual partner, as a marriage partner to be in union with, because one, she was human key, and negno, she was opposite to Adam's gender. And so here's the relevant point. The point is this, is that if it was just Eve's humanness alone that made her a suitable helper, God would not have used the word, it would, the word kenegno, it wouldn't be used in that way. It would just, it would have said, he's a key helper. God would say, all I need is somebody who is like Adam to be a suitable helper for Adam. But he didn't say that. He said, I'm looking for somebody who's in Adam's likeness as a human, but is also opposite to Adam in his sexuality. We're gonna take a look also at the New Testament. and, And I'm telling you these things because these are the things that are attacked by progressive Christianity. And people will say things to you and you'll be like, Oh, wow, that doesn't really make sense. So I'm trying to help you to understand and have some broader context rather than just saying, this is what the Bible says. The whole world knows this. No, the whole world doesn't know it. We live in a post-Christian society. The whole world doesn't know this stuff. How many of you know um, there's an attack against traditional marriage? That's that's not newsflash to anybody. But this attack against traditional marriage, it brings in this idea of same-sex marriage. And... In Progressive Christianity, there's a lot of conversation around this topic, and and today we're going to talk about it. The the conversation that people might say is they would say, well, Scripture doesn't condemn same-sex marriage. In fact, it only mentions homosexuality a few different times throughout Scripture. Well, I, I want to just speak to that for a quick moment. How many know as a parent... Just because you mention something more often than something else doesn't mean that it's less important to you as a parent. It just means that you're not mentioning it as often because perhaps it's not a likely issue for you. So for example, um, a parent might tell a kid a million times, be careful when crossing the street, over and over. Like, guess you go outside with your kids, just never ending, right, Bruce? You got four kids, like, right? I mean, I don't. I don't know how you keep them all safe. If you, that's why we don't cross the street anymore. You know, fast cars, crazy neighborhoods. But we don't have to tell kids, "Don't drive my car," because you know, my daughter's not going to try to drive my car. It's like not in her nature to do that. She's just not going to try to do that. So, although that is a rule in my house, "Don't drive my car," Elle. At the same time, I I address things that she's likely to do often. And so it was very unlikely for the traditional Jews to veer off in this way. It was happening in culture, but as God is addressing the Israelites and in the New Testament, as he's addressing Jewish culture, it was a traditional ethic for Jewish culture to follow everything that Moses said about human sexuality, And so it didn't need to be addressed a ton. In fact, if you search that word throughout all the scripture, I think you're only going to find it about seven times, but it's because in the traditional sense, it was not a huge issue for the people that were traditional Jews at the time. So the logic of saying that the Old Testament or the New Testament or scripture as a whole doesn't mention it often Is not great logic to say that there's permission to do this. In fact, nowhere in scripture is there ever any overt permission. Does God ever celebrate anything like this in scripture outside of sex between a man and a woman? In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't say anything about abortion either. (laughs) But he does say a lot of things about life. And he does say a lot of things about protecting children. So just because we don't see something radically addressed in Scripture does not mean that it's not something that God doesn't care about. What does Scripture say? In fact, what does Jesus say about sex and marriage? Because Jesus actually doesn't say a lot. And I'm just saying that not for shock value, but for honesty value. Any Christian who actually reads scripture, what does Jesus say about sex and marriage? He doesn't say a ton, but let's look at a passage. He says a few things. We're going to have to go to Mark 2 through nine to see what he has to say. Jesus asked a question about divorce by a Pharisee inside the church, Right? immorality in the church. He's asked by a Pharisee, and I want you to listen to the language that Jesus uses and how he addresses the conversation around marriage. So here's what Jesus does say about marriage. Mark 10, uh, two through eight. Some Pharisees came and tested Jesus, him, by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? It was, it was traditional for Jewish people to have marriage between man and a woman. Why? Because it was how it was established for them in the beginning. And Jesus answered them. It says, he says, well, what did Moses command you? You want to know what I think about divorce? I think what Moses thinks about divorce. Well, because I told Moses what to think about divorce because I'm God. I gave him the rules around this. They said, well, here's what Moses says. Moses didn't allow a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of your heart, he wrote this commandment to you. And we're going to, we're going to continue on. And, and Jesus continues and says, but from the creation, from where the creation, from the very beginning, God made people male and female. So he draws this conversation about divorce and marriage back to the beginning, back to the core, back to his original design for marriage. And he says, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Again, he's, he's bringing out the importance of sexual difference here. And then he describes that two shall become one in flesh. That's through having sex. And then he says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Marriage. So what does Jesus think about marriage? Well, he doesn't say a whole lot. Well, what he does say is he says, I believe what Moses said about marriage. And he points us back to what God said in the very beginning. So what does Jesus think about marriage? Jesus will take people back to what he said in Genesis 1, 27, what he said in Genesis 2 and 24. Here's why I've taken so much time on this. It's because this. you can ask any question you want to ask about marriage sexual sin. And if you have your base understanding around this area founded upon scripture, it doesn't matter what other persuasion comes along the way. Scripture sets a foundation for everything. You can bring up whatever you wanna bring up about affirming positions of LGBTQ plus Christian community and Jesus' answer would be the same. I side with Moses, I side with the law and the prophets. Because I gave him those things, and he would say the same thing to you about your sin sexually. Scripture adjusts the boundaries of sex by saying sex is for marriage, it also tells us that sex is for procreation. Procreation is about having babies. Procreation is about God creating the perfect environment to raise a child in. That God says it is a perfect environment to have a daddy and a mommy to raise a great child. In fact, statistics say that when a society raises kids with a mommy and a daddy and no divorce in a home, that child is more likely to have strong ethics, to have strong morals, to have a great education, to produce strong in a society, not drain a society of social provisions, but actually be a contributor to society. I think that, and those are secular statistics. And I think that the reason for that is, is because God knew what he was doing when he created the family. We're talking about sexual ethics today and we are way, way over time. Today, the last and final thing that I'm gonna mention, I'm gonna briefly blaze through this is that scripture addresses the need for balance in this area of teaching regarding human sexuality, balance. We should never teach anything and not be balanced about it. I think Pastor Mike, the pastor of our church before Chris and I were here, my father-in-law was really, really good at that. I love what Proverbs 11.1 says. It says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. In other words, when we teach on human sexuality, we should teach the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And when we teach partial truth, it actually displeases God. And some of us are so nervous to teach our own children about the area of sexuality that we leave stuff out and that we tell them sex is bad, sex is not good, you need to stay away from it, or we don't say anything at all, and our kids are getting a unbalanced view of sexuality. If you grew up in the 90s, there was something really popular that emerged during that time called the purity culture. And the purity culture was a response to the sexual revolution of the 70s. And so if you grew up in youth ministry in the 90s into the 2000s, you would see a primarily way of teaching on sexuality. And this this way was this in your notes. is pretty much sounded like this. Sex is bad. In fact, it was like, sex is bad, stay away from it. It's evil. And kids are grinning going, if you've seen what I've seen, it doesn't look bad to me, it looks really good. But the the word was sex is sin, it's bad, it is evil, and and it's only for perverts. And if you're interested in it, and and if as a young person, I'm gonna say a a shocking word, but I, I just think it's really important to say, as a young person, if you sense any arousal in any way in this area, It's because you're bad. No, it's because your plumbing is working right and you're maturing and you're going through puberty and you're growing into the human that God created you to be. And the Bible in fact doesn't just say that sex is all bad and does it say that it's bad. Yes, within a certain context it's bad and that context is outside of marriage. But it also says that sex is really good. In your notes, the balance teaching on sex should be this, sex outside of marriage is sin. But sex inside marriage is good. It's important for us to teach our kids that sex is not shameful. That scripture says it's good within the boundaries of marriage. In fact, Genesis tells us in the early chapters, chapter 2, that they were intimate, they were one, they were naked together, and they were unashamed because sex is good. I believe parents should be aggressive at teaching their kids age-appropriate information when it comes to human sexuality. In your notes, purity culture not only taught that sex is bad, but it, purity culture did this. It promised, in your notes, sexual fulfillment. It promised sexual fulfillment. It promised, anybody upset that I'm going a little over right now? Yeah, I didn't think so. Um, It promised false rewards for sexual purity. The Bible does not offer a lot of the promises that purity culture offered. In fact, when people receive the promises that purity culture gave, they are often very disappointed with their life. And at times they blame God and sometimes they walk away from the faith altogether. And here's what an extreme form of teaching on sexuality does. And here's what the extreme form of purity culture taught when they taught, and I, I'm being a little polarizing a little bit right now, so please understand that. But when the only message that sex is bad uh, is, here, here's the, the opposite. Sex is bad, but if you're pure, Purity promises that you're going to marry the person of your dreams. If you're pure, you are going to have great sex when you're married. <laughs> Please don't show all your cards by your laughing. No, I, just, I just couldn't help it. Just had to throw it out there. If you're pure, you are going to have the greatest night of sex on your wedding night. Statistics say that most people don't have sex on their wedding night. Purity culture promises that there's a ton of benefits to sexual purity, but in fact, scripture doesn't promise these things to us. I know a lot of people who've been pure and are single and they wanna be married. I know a lot of people who saved their purity and they were virgins until they were married. And they have a lot of dysfunction in the area of their sex relationship with their married partner. Because we're afraid of what impurity does, we should not hold a carrot stick of false promises out in front of people to get them to comply with God's word. They need to know the truth. And the sex part of a married couple's life is like every area of their life. It requires discipleship. It requires work. It requires counseling, it requires learning, it requires discovering, and it's very unique to you and your married partner's story and the baggage you come in with. And just because you are pure doesn't mean that God's gonna bring another pure person to you in your life, I know that story too. In your notes, sexual purity is important, but it's not a promise for sexual fulfillment. Said a lot of things today and there's so much more to be said. But I just wanna just give the Holy Spirit a little bit of time and a little bit of room to work in in this room today. And I want the church to consider I want us to consider our own immorality right now. This is not about the world. it's not about anybody else. This is about us. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes today. I believe the Holy Spirit is challenging us in a couple of ways as church number one. I believe He's calling us to step it up in the area of purity. God's standard and his desires for righteousness and holiness are the same today as they were in the beginning. I'm grateful that we have the person of the Holy Spirit that empowers us to avoid sin, that gives us grace when we don't. But today, how might he be calling you to step it up in the area of purity in your life personally? And just ask Him that for a moment, Jesus. What do You want for me in the area of my own purity? It is full of progressive Christianity, full of thoughts about what the world says about s- sexuality and the world standard for sexual ethics, and it caused you to go, "Well, maybe you know, maybe, maybe we are a little too extreme in the church. Maybe, maybe it is a little too traditional." And you've been starting to veer another direction away from God's desire to express himself to the world in the area of sexual purity. Maybe, maybe God in his kindness today is just kind of veering you back towards his word. I believe the Holy Spirit is challenging some parents to move into the area of uncomfortable and teach a balanced view of human sexuality to their kids.